once in a lifetime, the uh, talking heads. Any uh, talking heads uh, fans out there anywhere? Yeah, I almost can guarantee you that has not been done in church before, but... Uh, <laughs> Something I've uh, noticed uh, about Facebook, most of the things that people post, uh, it's usually good stuff. Kind of a, hey, check this out. People tend to post what I call shining moments, you know, with the kids or the grandkids or uh, a success at work or vacation. It's the cool stuff that tends, tends to make it, uh, stuff that you can brag about. Once in a while, there'll be a uh, rant, uh, rant and a rave about something. Uh, sometimes there's inappropriate stuff. But most of the time, it's kind of a flaunting and, and here's what I'm kind of getting at. Um, let, let's say, how many parents we got in the house today? All right, parents. Let's say that you uh, go to parent-teacher conference. And so you ask, you say, how's my child doing? The teacher says, average, middle of the pack. Or you, you talk to a coach and say, how's my child doing? And they say, well, they're doing Okay. They're not the best, and they're not the worst. <laughs> now, here, here's my question. What are the odds that a parent will post that? You know, my kid's average. My kid's in the sweet spot of God's bell curve, you know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it's just not likely. And I'm not suggesting that we should post that, all right? But here, my point is, we ask the question, how is my child doing? There is an attachment to that. How is my child doing in, as they are compared to other kids? We have this way of measuring our performance, our identity, even our value and our worth in comparison to other people. I remember when I was living in uh, the Florida Keys, I was a kid at the time, and uh, we, we were there for uh, about three and a half years. And I was one of just a few English-speaking students in my class. And so for three years, I was top in my class, which wasn't saying a whole lot because we didn't learn anything. I mean, we, we really didn't. Uh, most of us spent our days drawing and playing games while the rest of the class was learning, learning English. And uh, so the, the fact is that uh, we, we'd do our thing and they were doing their thing. And so I move up north, and I was behind. I mean, I was way behind. In fact, I struggled for many years in school, and then ninth grade happened. I went to a private school that year. It was a pace school where you teach yourself. You study the pace, paces, and once you're able to pass with 80% or more, you can move on to the next pace, and so you move forward that way. And so they tested me coming in, and it was kind of a good news, bad news situation. The good news was that in the math and science, I was doing pre-college work with that. But in English and reading, 
fourth and fifth grade. And it was a, it was a hit to, to my ego. And I remember the first day of class after we had taken these tests and they placed us and they gave us a list of the paces that we were to get. And so that morning we gathered around tables and they had all the paces laid out and we were to get the stuff that was on our list. And so I was fine getting the the science and the math paces. And as I'm getting them, some of the guys my age, they were going, whoa, dude, big dog. And so I'm kind of like, you know, flexing and feeling, feeling good about myself. And then I started looking around on the table and I'm trying to find the, the fourth grade and fifth grade paces for the uh, English and reading. And they weren't on that table. They were on the table that was on the other side of the room, the elementary table. And so I stood there at that table and I, I was paralyzed. You know, I mean, I stood there a long time. In fact, I stood there too long. Because there was a point where I realized everybody else had got their paces. And they were seated in their cubicle. And everybody was watching me and waiting on me. And it was just one of the moments. And I slowly walked. To be honest, I kind of slinked over there. You know, like nobody will see me if I just tune them out. And I went over that side of the room and I picked up those paces. Some of the kids were snickering. The guys my age, one of them, the one that had called me Big Dog earlier, as I'm heading back to my cubicle, he goes, see spot, run, run spot, run. (laughs) Yeah. I'll be honest, at the moment that that happened, it was crushing. And I was mad. You know who I was mad at? I wasn't mad at the teachers. I wasn't mad at the people that had given us the tests. I was not even mad at myself. You know who I was mad at? The guys that were my age that were ahead of me in English and reading. And when it happened, I mean, I was mad. By the end of the year, us guys would get together, we'd laugh about it. But that, that first day, that, that was not a great experience for me. But that school was a great uh, thing that happened in my life because it helped me get caught up and it prepared me to do well in the future. Here's the weird thing. Comparisons start when we're really young. I mean, really young. And we have a way of identifying our worth, our performance, and our value in how we compare to other people. Now, comparison in and of itself, it's not a bad thing. It's a vital part of education. It's the way that children learn. You know, this box is bigger than that box, or a a fox is, is faster than a turtle, or I can get a better deal for my wife's birthday gift at Dollar Tree than Zales. So, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, really? I get applause over that. <laughs> yeah. 
Friends, when we start comparing ourselves to someone else, our egos get involved. We, we want to be better. We, we feel uh, diminished if we perceive that someone's ahead of us. Our egos start whispering to us. I mean, envy and jealousy, they, they get us very competitive in, in life. And so when we compare ourselves, if we're ahead, it is very easy to develop kind of a superior attitude. And it kills love in us. If we're behind, we see ourselves, we kind of score ourselves as worse. We, we feel inferior, unworthy, and that kills love inside us also. See, life's too short to do this. Life's too short to get involved in the comparison game. And I want to challenge you to reflect for just a moment. Where do you compare I mean, where do you compare yourself to to someone else in in life? Just think about that for a moment. I mean, do you compare yourself when on the basis of looks? You know, have you ever done that? You know, she's cuter than me. He's he's in better shape than me. Have you ever compared your, your hair or your tan or your physique or your weight? Or have you ever compared yourself intellectually? to someone? Grades, GPA, education? Have you ever compared your athleticism? Have you ever compared your career to someone else's career, or your home, or your car, or your girlfriend, or boyfriend, or spouse, or your kids? Or how about this? Have you ever compared how you're doing as a parent, how you're doing financially, how you're doing in your spiritual life, Have you ever compared your situation in life with someone else's situation in life? See, I could go on and on and on here. But it's confession time for us, okay? And kind of a mass confession. Have you ever compared yourself to anybody in any way? If so, raise your hand. Come on, raise them high. I mean, it's something we all struggle with. In fact, some of you, as I was saying that, you're going, yeah, yeah, I compare myself to others, but I'm probably better at comparing myself than most people. (laughs) It's toxic. It destroys. Life's too short to live that way. It goes against God's design for us in life. Comparing, it's at the root of the second sin that you find in the Bible. The first sin was Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, they ate from the fruit of the tree that God told them not to eat from. The second sin involves a couple brothers by the name of Cain and Abel. The story's found in Genesis. It's the first book of the Bible. It says this. When it was time for, for the harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel also bought a gift, brought a gift, the best portion of the firstborn lamb from his flock. The Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. This made Cain very angry, and he looked dejected. When you read that story, initially, 
you kind of wonder. You wonder, why was Abel's offering looked favorably upon by God? And why did Cain's kind of fall short, so to speak? See, Cain brings some of his crops, uh, a token gift. And Abel brings the first portion, the, the, the firstborn, it says, the, the best of his flock, the best portions from the best sheep in, in his flock. And we've talked about this a little bit, about giving, giving the first fruits and the tithe and the best, and it it's, finds its way in that scripture. See, it all belongs to God anyway. We talk about we're, we're stewards. But God loves it when we make giving a priority as it is here. We find the, the, the scripture, will, God will teach his people this important principle over and over, not just to bring some of the fruit, but, you know, what, what's left over, but to bring the first fruit. You know, here you go, God. I, I'm thankful. Here you go, God. Here's the first part, the best part of what I have. Abel does that. Cain doesn't. And the implication, as you read this story, is that Cain was kind of giving out of obligation, because he had to, a very different heart, where you've got Abel. Abel trusts God, and he loves God, and he's living with this reality of his dependence on God, and God loved that. God loved that. God loves Abel's heart. And Abel is experiencing what it is to to be generous and to be thankful. And so Cain shuts himself off from that kind of feeling. Cain sees the joy that Abel has, and it grates on him. It's a curious thing. I mean, Cain doesn't get angry at himself. He doesn't try and figure out, you know, what do I need to do better? Cain doesn't even get mad at God. Cain gets mad at his brother. Scripture says this. It says, Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why do you look so resentful? If you do the right thing, won't you be accepted? But if you don't do the right thing, sin will be waiting at the door, ready to strike. It will entice you, but you must rule over it. God kind of uh, plays therapist with Cain here. Asks him some questions. He says, "Why, why are you angry? Why do you look so resentful? If you do the right thing, won't you be accepted? But Cain, Cain won't answer the questions. Instead, he, he dehumanizes his brother. He starts seeing Abel as the problem here. The, the questions that, that God asks Cain, I think, I think they're great questions. In fact, I would argue they're great questions for, for you and I to, to wrestle with in our lives when we start comparing in life. They help us identify what the issue is helps us identify what we want. See, I believe Cain, in his best self, I believe Cain wanted to be generous. I believe he wanted to, to trust God. And I fully believe that he loved his brother. I believe Cain wanted all that. But he won't deal with the questions. And I think we're like that. In, in our best selves who we want to be. I mean, we want to be God-honoring. We want to do the right thing in life. But over time, we wear down. Not only do we not answer the questions, 
we don't even think about him anymore. It says, Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. Let's go out to the field. That line right there, that is loaded with sin because Cain is deceiving his brother here. It says, let's go out in the field. When they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. That theme of deception, falsehood, comparison, it taints the human race, doesn't it? Reading in the news several years ago, there were two women from Iowa. They were uh, young girls. They were competing in a beauty pageant. Cindy was Miss Harvest Queen, and Sonia was the homecoming queen. And they had this competitiveness. They both liked the same guy named Jim. And Jim ultimately married Sonia. And that rejection for Cindy had just fostered. And one night she strangled Sonia to death. It rocked that town. It was in the news for quite a while. See, there is a deep level of toxicity when we compare who we are with someone else when we compare what we have with what someone else has. It divided Isaac and Ishmael that were brothers. The next generation, it would divide Jacob and his brother Esau. Scripture said about those boys, it says, the the boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, like being outside, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tent. Isaac who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau. Jacob's dad here, he loved Esau. But Rebecca, mom, loved Jacob. Dad loves Esau. Mom loved Jacob. There's a world of hurt right there. It was a comparative thing, and it was deadly. It was killing those boys. I mean, it's the same thing that happened with Joseph when he was given the coat by his father, coat of many colors. It started a sibling rivalry, gave root to envy rivalry. See, comparisons lead to division. It steals, it kills, it destroys. Scripture says that Saul, Saul stood head and shoulders above every man in that nation. He stood strong. Saul was king. He appoints David as a warrior. David would become a general in the Israeli army. David goes into battle, and he wins big time. So the women in the kingdom, they're, they're singing songs and dancing. They're even writing songs about David. You know, Saul has killed thousands. David has killed tens of thousands. I don't know what that song sounded like, but it made Saul angry, Scripture says. Very angry. See, I don't don't know if it was like a really bad rap or it got in your head and you couldn't get rid of it, but the the song, he didn't like hearing it. It said, he took it as a personal insult. 
He said, they credit David with 10,000s and me with only 1,000. Can you, can you feel that? Before you know it, they'll be giving him the kingdom. And from that moment on, Saul kept his what? Eye on David. Kept his eye on David. Saul keeps his eye on David. Saul is fixed on the thing that he's jealous of. Comparison's that way. I mean, when, when I start to get jealous, I look at you differently. See, I don't see my brother or sister anymore. I don't see someone that I can love. I see a person who's causing me pain in my life. Why are you so angry, Saul? I'm afraid. I'm afraid that before I know it, David's going to take my kingdom. And when I read that, I want to go, are you kidding me? I mean, Saul, you are the king. Why do you care? You're the king, David. David works for you. When David wins, you win. But that's not how Saul saw it. I mean, that's what happens when we compare when there's jealousy, when there's envy, you, you find fear usually. Saul is afraid. In fact, Saul's so consumed with his envy and his jealousy, he eventually tries to kill David. And the very thing that Saul feared the most, the loss of his kingdom, it's exactly what he put into motion and it's exactly what happened. Because of Saul's Jealousy, grasping, it all comes down around him. Because of his comparative way of living, Saul would lose his kingdom. See, I believe comparing always kills and steals and destroys in life. See, life's too short to live that way. Life's too precious to live that way. You know, there's a better way to live. New Testament. You got a guy by the name of John the Baptist. John's preaching out in the wilderness. Repent, the kingdom of God's coming. And people are gathering to hear him preach. And one day, John the Baptist is preaching, and Jesus starts walking toward him. John the disciple, who's different than John the Baptist, records this. He says, the next day. John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And when John said that, people started going to hear Jesus preach. Things changed in that moment. Some, some of John's disciples, they, they come to him. It's very interesting. He says, They came to John, they said to him, Rabbi, that man... Who was with you? They're talking about Jesus here. That man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he's baptizing, and everyone is going to him. John had disciples. Jesus had disciples. John, John was called rabbi. Jesus is now called rabbi. John is, is baptizing, and now Jesus is baptizing. And John's disciples, they come to him, and they're saying, we used to be the number one thing. 
We used to be the prominent ones. Everyone was coming to us, and now people are going to them. They're becoming more popular. You're becoming less popular, John. You're becoming less important. And John, if you're becoming less important, well, we're becoming less important. Do do you see how this is going? See that comparison thing? I mean, it even taints the spiritual arena. I I can tell you almost any time I'm in a gathering of pastors, as soon as we kind of do the meet thing, I always figure the games are going to begin. And I'll be honest, I I find it uh, very sad. And I used to play this little game that uh, after the uh, pleasantries, after we introduced ourselves and stuff, to see if I could count to 10 before someone would ask, how's it going at your church? Which is kind of pastor speak for how big is your church? And I've always resisted. My entire career, I've just resisted. I don't want to answer the question. And it's because there, there's this thing about comparing and perceived importance. John's disciples. We used to be the ones everyone was following. Now they're following them. And I love John's response. John says, a person can receive only what is given to them from heaven. It's all gifts from God. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah but I am sent ahead of him. John says, I'm not the Messiah, but I was sent ahead of him. It's an interesting question he poses there, really. John John is saying, I know who I am, and I know who I'm not, and I know I'm not the Messiah. It's how the kingdom of God works. I mean, don't worry about where you are on the curve in life. Worry about who you are and who you're not. And you're not the Messiah, and I'm not the Messiah. But know who you are. says the bridegroom is the one whom the bride belongs, but the bridegroom's friend who stands by and listens is glad when he hears the bridegroom's voice. This is how my own happiness is made complete. Now, John's going to use some imagery, and I'll admit it's, it's a bit strange for us, but it's, it's the image of marriage. And he's driving a point, because John is saying, I'm not the bridegroom. I'm the friend of the groom. In the Hebrew, uh, it's the shashman, the, the friend of the groom. It's the, uh, like the best man we would have today. And one of the last tasks of the shashman was they would stand in front of the tent, the bridal tent, and they would stand guard. And at the end of the festivities, and it usually was late, late into the night, so it's it's dark outside, you can't see anything, but he's standing guard, and then the groom would start approaching and would say, hey, it's me. 
And he'd hear that. And it was a moment of joy. See, the Shoshman had finished their task. They had done their job. They had helped their friend. And the marriage now was complete. John is saying, I'm the Shoshman. I'm not the groom. The bride does not belong to me. John was saying that the church belongs to Jesus. You know, the people are not mine. The kingdom of God is not mine. It belongs to Jesus. If I try and grab what belongs to him, he says, I'm going to lose my joy. So don't think when the people are going to Jesus instead of me, don't think about me losing my job. Don't think about it that way. Think about that I have completed my job. That's why the complete joy because I've done what I was called to do. As a church, we want to reach people for Jesus Christ. Every now and then I'll be talking and someone will say to me something about such and such church is our competition. Friends, other churches aren't our competition. They're not. I mean, I thank God for every church, any church that's preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, I'm happy for them. They're not our competition. We are called to reach people, and they're reaching people. John John 3, 3, he goes on, he says, we must become, he must become, talking about God, he must become more important while I become less important. And my point is, life is not about me. And life's not about you. And life's not about faith fellowship. Life's about Jesus Christ. And it's critical that you grasp that in life because life's too short to miss God's design for you. This is how life works. You know, the more my ego gets in the center, the more my ego gets in the center of my purpose for living, the more miserable I'm going to be. But the more God is in the center the more joy I will experience in life. It's a strange paradox that goes on. When I die to my ego, when I put God in the center of life, what happens is the greater my life becomes, the bigger my world gets. But I got to become less. And God's got to become more. And that's true in your life. I mean, we live in a crazy time. A crazy world. I mean, it's all about comparisons. But how do, you, how do you live another way? I mean, how do you do that? Ask, ask yourself, who are you comparing yourself to these days? It, it probably won't be Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg or one of them. It's probably going to be somebody down the street from you probably going to be somebody down the hall or a few offices down. It's probably going to be someone really close to you. I mean, be honest about it. And then ask yourself some tough questions. You know, ask the questions that God asked Cain. Why am I angry? Why are you angry today? Why am I resentful? Or maybe you ask, what is it that I really want that's got me all worked up? What would my best self want? 
And then ask yourself, who am I? You know, what has God created me to be? You've got to wrestle with that stuff. Understand who you are and understand who you're not. See, joy is found. You, you find it the best in life when you understand who you are and who God created you to be. You know, joy is found when you're, you're the best you that you can be. You experience joy when, when you're loving the people around you, when you're doing what God's called you to do in life, when you're using your gifts and leveraging them to, to make a difference in this world, to make a difference in eternity. You know, it's when you're being who God created you to be and called you to be. No more comparing. It's how the kingdom of God works. As we become less, God becomes more. And as we do that, we rise in life and we experience a lot more joy. There's an account in in Scripture. It's right after the resurrection. Jesus walked out of the grave and he was on the earth for a few more days. And Jesus is restoring Peter. And Peter, you might remember, he he messed up a lot. I mean, a lot of different ways he figured out how to mess things up. And so Jesus is kind of recommissioning him and encouraging him. And Jesus asks him, he says, do you love me? Peter says, yes. He says, feed my sheep. Jesus says, feed my sheep. And it's interesting, three times Jesus asks him the same question, do you love me, Peter? And three times Peter would say, yes. Yes, I do, Lord. You know I love you. And three times Jesus is going to say to him, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. And then Jesus tells Peter that he's going to die. In fact, he tells him that he's going to suffer. He tells him it's going to be really hard what he's about to go through. But it's going to bring glory to God. And then he's going to experience eternal joy because of going through that. And it's interesting because as they're having this conversation, Jesus and Peter, John walks by. And Scripture says, when Peter saw the disciple, when he saw John, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about him? See, you got got this dynamic going on in Scripture. When you read the, the Gospels, you got this dynamic between Peter and John. John in the Gospels is recorded as the disciple that Jesus loved. Peter's not that disciple. At the Last Supper, John is seated right next to Jesus, the seat of honor. At the resurrection, John and Peter, they they race to the tomb. John got there first. And make no mistake, it was a race. And John outruns Peter. They're fishing one day. And Jesus is walking toward John and Peter. And John says, it's the Lord. Peter did not recognize Jesus, but John did. See, over and over in Scripture, John, 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 John. I can't stand John. Why is he gay? He's always first. What what is is, this messed up? And so Peter sees John walking by him that day. What about him? 
He's your favorite. He's always first. What about him? Why don't you make him Pope or something, you know? I mean, that's the kind of thing that's going on here. And Jesus replies, he says, if I want him to remain until I come, what difference does it make to you? You must follow me. Peter, keep your eyes on me. Peter, keep your eyes on me. Focus on me. Pay attention to me. Keep your eyes off him, Peter. You want to be miserable, you keep focused on him. You keep your eyes on me, John. Or Peter. Yeah, say John's first. (laughs) You keep your eyes on me, Peter. And if you do that, you'll be filled with joy. There is no life when you are always asking, how come I can't have what they have? In fact, it's only death that you experience in that. And friends, I want to challenge you. This life is too short. It is too short to live that way. Quit comparing, quit comparing. Focus on Jesus Christ. Focus on following him, being obedient, being faithful. It is the only way to live. Get your eyes on all the stuff that you don't have. Get your eyes off the stuff that you do have that you think you're a little little bit better. And just focus on Jesus Christ and who you are and who you're not. And if you figure that out, you will find your life has a lot more joy. A lot more joy. Let's stand for a word of prayer together. Our holy God, God, forgive us. Sometimes we get so caught up in comparing. God, we just realize that you created us to be us. You created me to be me, not someone else. God, forgive us when we try to be something we're not. God, may we realize that all we have, everything we have, they're gifts from you. To just live with a thankful heart for those things. God, help us to become less, for you to become more in our lives. God, may we just experience that joy, that completeness, that peace that passes all understanding. God, help us to to live that way. Stay focused on you. God, we give you the glory. We give you the praise this day. And God's people said, "Let's, let's worship together and prepare for communion.